Today is Palm Sunday, the day in which we remind ourselves of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. It's the Sunday we celebrate his very clear determination to enter Jerusalem to suffer and die for our sins to be forgiven and our lives to be given a brand new Genesis, a brand new beginning. The crowds gave him the royal treatment. If the donkey could sing like Balaam's donkey could talk, perhaps it would have sung, What a friend you have in Jesus! What a privilege to carry Jesus Christ, the only King! It certainly did a better job honoring Jesus than the spiritual leaders were doing. They simply did not have the forethought and spiritual capacity to welcome Jesus Christ in a worthy way. Today, I want you to consider welcoming Jesus more deeply into your life and more completely over your life. I want to speak to you from the subject, A Worthy Welcome for Jesus, Our Wonderful Savior. A Worthy Welcome for Jesus, Our Wonderful Savior. As we consider this, I would direct your attention to the Gospel according to John, chapter 12. And I will be reading the first 11 verses. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only to account of him, on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away 
and believing in Jesus. This story is also recounted in Matthew 26, 6 through 16, and Mark chapter 14, 3 through verse 11. And we will be referencing some of what we find there. Moreover, we will also be considering some of the themes related to this story recorded at another anointing by another woman found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. John, Matthew, and Mark's account associate this anointing of Jesus with the celebration of the Passover. The Passover, as you know, commemorates that God does not hesitate, but harries to deliver you, his people, from the bitterness of sin's bondage by the blood of his unblemished lamb. Therefore, you and I must be even more ready than the Israelites were to leave Egypt, to leave our sins behind, and like Israel, to fully receive this Lamb of God, Jesus, and be consumed by Him. Because God's aim in Christ is that His wrath and condemnation against your sin would pass over you, you who believe in Jesus. Because Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed in order to bring you into his family, into his fellowship, and form you into his image. In Matthew 26, verse 2, Jesus reminds his disciples of his impending crucifixion. And even from the standpoint of the chief priests and elders, Jesus is already a dead man. John tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, that Jesus came to Bethany for dinner because he was the honored guest for raising Lazarus from the dead. Matthew and Mark tell us the dinner was at the house of Simon the leper. They further recall that while Jesus was reclining at the table, a woman, no doubt Mary, came with a very expensive ointment and anointed Jesus' head. Anointing someone's head was a cultural custom at this time, especially for an honored guest. It would soften the skin of your head in such a dry climate. It was also a reminder of God's blessing. The psalmist said of the Lord, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. During a dinner celebration, you might also think of Psalm 104, verse 15, and how it testifies that the Lord gives wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Or even Psalm 133, which says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil 
on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Anointing was ordinary. But in this case, one of the things that stood out was it wasn't oil, it was ointment. And it was extremely expensive ointment. Moreover, Jesus, it is said in John's account, tells us that the anointing was not limited to Jesus' head. But while they reclined at the table, Mary took a pound of pure spikenard, an extremely expensive imported ointment, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with the hair of her head. What a welcome! What service! What a display of humble appreciation, intimate affection, and heartfelt adoration for Jesus. With the whole house filling up with the aroma of this very expensive ointment, it was impossible to ignore Mary's very public and extravagant display of devotion for Jesus. However, everyone did not share her sentiment or point of view. John tells us in John 12, verse 4, it was Judas who led the indignant scolding of Mary. Not what a welcome, but what a waste, as the other writers say. Judas and his disciples protested. They protested because the ointment was worth about a year's wages. Please, money doesn't grow on trees. It could have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. John, however, gives us some insight into at least Judas's indignation. In verse 4, he was about to betray Jesus. He was a devil and didn't like Jesus to begin with. Also in verse 6, Judas protested not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. When you have an opportunity to spend on Jesus, serve Jesus, and give to Jesus, do you think about the cost or loss to you that will be? If you do, you should keep your money. God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't need your money. We learn from Matthew 26, verse 14 and 16, that Judas sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, the Old Testament price of a slave. If he only knew Jesus' true worth, he could have gotten a whole lot more for Jesus. Well, if he knew Jesus' true worth, he would have been next in line after Mary to worship Jesus because he's priceless. Mary could have saved her wealth for herself and lived a bit more lavishly and self-indulgent like Judas. 
She also could have sold the ointment and shared the money to help others in need, like the disciples said. But instead, she spent it on Jesus. She spilled it on him. She spent it on him. What do you do with your wealth, your money, your talents, and your resources? Do you set these things aside and look for and wait for an opportunity to spend it extravagantly on Jesus? You might have thought, if you were there, Mary's action makes perfect sense. In light of Lazarus being raised from the dead, she was expressing her gratitude. Wouldn't you be willing to go all out, out of your way, to give extravagantly if Jesus raised someone you love from the dead? Besides, Lazarus could now work and buy some more ointment if he wanted. Jesus' response, however, to the protesters reveals that Mary had a lot more on her mind than meets the eye. Mark chapter 14, verse 6 through 8 tells us, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus is very, very special. And doing good to him in response to him, and, and in response to his demonstrated love, is far more important far more essential, far more beneficial, and far more rewarding than any act of charity, no matter how great it is or how many people are impacted by it. Celebrating and honoring Jesus for who he is and what he does is the main event. It is the main event because the only way you can properly give to and minister to poor and needy people, to anyone for that matter, is for you to first deeply appreciate who Jesus is and what Jesus has given you when he took the poorest place of all on Calvary and received the poorest treatment of all, becoming sin receiving God's wrath. He did this so no matter how poor or how needy you or anyone might be, you can in him receive righteousness from God, justification with God, peace with God, reconciliation to God, access before God, forgiveness by God, the Spirit of God poured into your heart's pouring into your hearts the love of God, the most profound riches of all. This gospel 
established at the death of Jesus, confirmed by his burial, is what equips you to serve the poor and needy effectively, biblically, and in a way that brings glory to God. Remember the benediction? Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. It's by the blood of the covenant that you are equipped to serve. Whether it's the poor, the needy, the rich, the greedy, whoever. It's by his blood that you are equipped. It's in appreciating and adoring him for what he's done. That you are thereby thereby shaped and molded, and the desires of your heart are reset to now go out in the world and serve in a way that will actually be effective and actually give God glory and not some kind of social program or fix. This gospel established at the death of Jesus, confirmed by his burial, is what equips you to serve the poor and needy effectively, biblically, and in a way that brings glory to God. Far more than a stimulus check, although I did receive mine with gratitude, more than simply pursuing economic, academic, and multi-ethnic equality, enrichment, and empowerment. None of those things will do a bit of good socially if people are not spiritually emancipated by Jesus and empowered by his Holy Spirit. And we'll never pursue that for people if we don't first appreciate those gifts given to us in Jesus. When you have those moments, like Mary is having here, and I hope and pray they are many, those moments when you become more aware of your sins, more aware of your need for Jesus, and more aware of his absolute sufficiency to deal with your weaknesses, your wickedness, and your unworthiness. When you have those moments when all of these things come together in your awareness, those moments that, that lead you to say, oh, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. How much more beautiful are the feet of him who is the good news? The beauty of Jesus' feet does not come from a pedicure, but from the fact that he brings good news and is the good news. He announces peace 
with God, the peace of God. He brings news of happiness. He publishes news of salvation, the gracious and free and full redemption without money. Jesus says, your God reigns over all brokenness, all wickedness, and all social corruption and injustices, and he does it through his death on the cross. When you have those moments, when your awareness of these realities and how Jesus extends his kingdom through his cross, when your awareness goes beyond your intellect and spills over into your affections and captivates your emotions and constrains your will, I hope you will stop and take stock of the wonder of Jesus and worship him. Do you allow your heart to be melted and moved by Jesus' mercies? and allow those mercies to minister to your soul. And thereby, renew your mind, mold your motives, and reset your life mission to truly benefit others. This was the habit of Mary who customarily, as you know, sat at Jesus' feet to listen to his teaching. It says so in Luke chapter 10. She knew Jesus had to die and would soon be dead, and she fully received the message of his death for his kingdom to come to life. Note the intimacy of her anointing of Jesus' feet. It was somewhat inappropriate for a woman, especially a married woman, which Mary was not. Nevertheless, it was considered a bit loose for a woman to let her hair down in public. And yet Mary is wiping Jesus' feet with the hair on her head. In Luke 7, we see a very similar detail in another anointing of Jesus by another woman. There it says in Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. This is perhaps even more culturally scandalous than Mary's anointing. One thing that Luke does in this different anointing 
is he highlights the sinfulness of this woman. She may have been a prostitute or some other scandalous sinner. Moreover, in these three verses, Luke underlines that this was done in the house of a Pharisee who also happened to be named Simon. And just like the game, Simon says, this Pharisee wanted everyone to do what he thought and said was right. Pharisees, by definition, were considered separated ones, a cut above other people, a kind of moral standard, if you will, a holy, law-abiding model of how others were to live and behave. What faith it had to take for this woman to enter this particular man's house with her sinful baggage. Yet she sensed the same thing Mary sensed about the beauty of Jesus. The beauty of Jesus' feet. The beauty of his message of peace. His message of happiness. His message of free and full redemption without payment. She came in weeping. She came in wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. She was weeping because she was a sinner, and she knew it. Do you know you are a sinner no better than her? Simon the Pharisee didn't know. She was also weeping primarily because of Jesus' grace. Do you know there is grace to be had for all who keep coming to Jesus? Can't you hear this woman singing? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Do you think of yourself that way? Simon the Pharisee wouldn't be caught dead singing that one. This woman knew and believed Jesus was the Savior who came to save people like her and like you and I from our sins. Simon didn't think he was that needy. She knew Jesus was gracious and merciful, a friend of sinners. Do you know that today? She let her hair down. She wiped his feet clean with her hair. She kept on kissing Jesus' feet. And she anointed his beautiful feet with that expensive ointment. What's wrong with these women? Nothing is wrong with these women. We should be asking what's wrong with everyone else at these meals. Every person along with you and I ought to be standing in line to anoint and wash and kiss Jesus' beautiful feet. Because at another meal, we are told, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. These women had insight that even the disciples did not have into Jesus' self-giving for our sins to be forgiven. Appreciating his sacrifice will liberate the way you minister to others and it will expand the extent to which you will go to be a neighbor to others in need. And that's not all. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples when he sent them ahead of him to announce his kingdom? In Mark chapter 6, verse 11, we read, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Those who would not receive Jesus' kingdom and would not listen to his words, his disciples were to shake off the dust on their feet, and that dust would testify that Jesus was here. He announced peace. He announced reconciliation. He published happiness and the free grace of salvation without payment. God's reign over all that is broken and corrupted to make all things new. But the message was not welcome. Many believe they didn't need all that. They weren't that bad. And their need was not that desperate. Look at these women. Not only do they receive Jesus, his message of grace, and his kingdom of love, but they are wiping the dust on his feet into their hair as a testimony that they receive him fully. They will listen to him completely. That dust testifying to his message is all over their hair and is covering the lips and the face of this woman in Luke 7 who can't stop kissing Jesus' feet. That dust testifies to Jesus' worth and wonderful gospel. And it's testifying all over her mouth that Jesus is full of grace and full of mercy and he welcomed me into his family. Have you ever been kissed by your crush? You don't wash your face for a week. Do you want to be daily free of sin's grip on you? Do you want to be free to serve others effectively for God's glory? You have to do more than this Pharisee. His daily desire 
to live righteously fell short of God's glory. His strict lifestyle was rooted in his power and was further offset by his disdain for everyone who wasn't like him. Jesus tells him in Luke 7, 44 through 47, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This woman was not forgiven because she loved Jesus. But her love for Jesus was the evidence that she was forgiven. And she knew it because she, unlike the Pharisee, was not observing and confessing how sinful everyone else was. But she was looking into the mirror of God's law and seeing her own wickedness and yet looking away from herself in faith to Jesus, the only one able to wash her and save her. The Pharisee loves little because he is forgiven little, but he is not forgiven little because he has less sin. He is forgiven little because he admits and confesses less of his sins, if any at all. He is simply not willing to look honestly at Jesus and his law and see that he does not measure up to Jesus's perfect standard. It's just too uncomfortable, too awkward, too humiliating. Seeing your moral failure alone does not lead to salvation. Seeing how humiliatingly sinful you are alone does not lead to growth and sanctification. Fixating alone on your failure can lead you to despair or, like the Pharisee, lead you to a sinful kind of comparative analysis with other sinners who you think are worse than you. This leads you to arrogantly look down your nose at others like this Pharisee was doing with this woman. It also leads you to be absent-minded about your own wickedness and leads you to stand aloof. The worst part of all, it leads you to stand aloof from Jesus, the only one who can save you. You and I sometimes would rather not know how truly wicked we are. And having Jesus so close can make you feel a bit awkward if you're not willing to look at 
your sin in light of him. However, what Mary had, what this other woman had, what the Pharisee and the disciples needed, and what you and I daily need is an honest assessment before God of our wickedness, our unworthiness, and even our disdain for the preeminence and perfection of Jesus. But in addition, we need to do this in faith, looking to Jesus and his willingness to dine even with Pharisees and with sinners in order to forgive and to renew all of us that we would be stirred up to go to him with abandon and bring all of our failure at his precious feet and see when we look at him, although we don't measure up, his mercy runs down, way down, and runs deep to the lowest place of all, to lift us to sit with him in heavenly places of glory by grace. That is why we sing Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. In him, we don't measure up. But that is why we sing Hosanna in the highest to him. Don't let your comparative analysis with other people's sins make you arrogant. Don't let your personal inventory of your own sins paralyze you with guilt, despair, and depression so that you don't even come to Jesus. Jack Miller, who was a seminary professor, evangelist, and pastor, among other things, was known to often say, and Tim Keller got it from him, you are more sinful and wicked and flawed than you would ever dare believe. But at the same time, you are more loved, accepted, and valued by God than you would ever dare hope. So the Pharisee, and the disciples who just are not getting it. To them, Jesus says, what's wrong with you guys? Why aren't you down here with these women worshiping at my feet? Why are you missing this moment? Yet he also says to others, who stand far off. You are loved beyond your wildest dreams. Come join these women at my feet and worship for these beautiful feet along with my hands and sides were pierced for your peace, for your happiness, for your salvation and redemption without payment. I'm the one who makes the payment, Jesus says to you. Confess your sin daily. No matter how much you fail, Jesus, come to him again and again and again and again. Together, know that you can never know the breadth, the length, the height, nor the depth of his love for you.
and it is in seeking to know this unknowable, steadfast, immeasurable, unfailing, and everlasting love for you that will keep you steady, faithful to him, and faithful in serving him more than all the discipline and self-reliance you could possibly muster. Ultimately, this very costly ointment is like Jesus himself. He is priceless and yet poured out for you and your salvation. Initially, we look at Calvary and say in our sin, what a waste, until we see our sin being borne by him, God's wrath against us being taken by him, and now through his death, burial, and resurrection, all things can and will be made new. You're new. A new creation. This, in turn, leads you and I like this ointment, like Paul, like Jesus, to be poured out like a drink offering for the blessing and benefit of others in need even those who think they have no need for Christ. Jesus says the opportunity to help the poor is omnipresent, but the only way to be a blessing to the poor or to anyone is to appreciate Jesus first, God's inexpressible gift, Mary's accurate appraisal of Christ, her humble appreciation her intimate affection, her heartfelt adoration of Jesus is such a model of how we should receive him and love him that Jesus says, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It says that in Matthew, 26, 13. Let your hosannas ring this Palm Sunday and beyond. And let your love for Christ, like Mary's love for Christ, like this woman's love for Christ, this sinful woman's love for Christ, be worthy in your life of commemorating for generations to come. May God bless you and keep you this Palm Sunday.